The ending of Jonah uh, is sort of like watching an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Um, do you, you know who he is? These days he's behind movies like Split and Glass. Back in the day, he was really famous for The Sixth Sense and The Village and Signs and all these movies. And, and Shyamalan was the king of the plot twist. You had it predicted in your mind. You thought the movie was going one way the whole time. And the narrative is moving that direction. And then all of a sudden, right at the end, it flips. And the script is very different than what you expected. It goes entirely a different way. That's sort of what Jonah feels like to me. As you read through this thing, you think, okay, I know how this is going to end. Jonah's the reluctant prophet so far. He's, he's going to see the error of his ways. He's going to go and preach in Nineveh. All these people are going to be converted. It's going to be amazing. And then he's going to be like, God, you were right. And then he's going to repent himself and everybody's going to come together. John and his enemies, they're going to sing Kumbaya and everything's good. Like that's what you think is going to happen. Plot twist. That's not what happens. Chapter four, many commentaries would say is the most disturbing and astonishing and shocking ending of a book in the Bible. It goes completely a different direction. And I think that's part of the lesson for us. Chapter four is where we actually begin to learn what the story has been about from the very beginning. So with that in mind, we're going to look at the beginning of chapter four tonight, just the first four verses. Then we'll come back next week and finish it out. So here we go. Jonah chapter four, one through four. And it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this why I said when I was yet in my country that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said... Do you do well to be angry? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord and they will stand forever. Would you pray with me for a moment? God, as we come to this passage, we need your help. Uh, I need your help considering it and working through it. Uh, Lord, I'm weak and exhausted and conflicted in so many ways. Um... This passage is a difficult one, and you've intended it for your people, and you've intended it even for this night. I pray that you would speak, that you would be strong, that you would be our nourishment, that you would be our teacher. Lord, we need to see what are some things that Jonah is dealing with here that's true of us, uh, so that we can be pointed to the better Jonah, Jesus. So I pray that you would guide that conversation that you would guide this time that you would speak through your word i pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight O lord our rock and redeemer in jesus name we ask these things amen so kelly and i have these two kids right these two beautiful wonderful sweet sassy uh creative dramatic Kids, these daughters of ours, they're eight and six, and they're they're very different. If you're around Jordan and Lucy, they're very different. But in one of the ways that they are very similar is in the way that they complain. 
They have, they have very similar complaints, I've noticed. One of their favorite complaints is this. It's, it's two words. It's the thing that they say when, say, one of them gets a toy at the dentist office that day and the other one didn't go to the dentist and one comes home with the ring and the other one says, where's my ring? Two words, no fair. Right? You know those words? Or when one has pajama day at school in her class, but the other one doesn't have pajama day at school in her class, no fair. Or when they want ice cream for dessert, but they forgot we just gave them candy kind of like right before dinner. We're like, the candy was your dessert. You just had it before dinner. And they're like, no fair. That's their similarity. No fair. Chapter four is when Jonah lodges his complaint against God. And in the same ways that our girls will literally like cross their arms and like take their stance and sometimes look away from us. And say, no fair. That's what Jonah's doing in this passage. He's crossing his arms. He's looking away from God. He's looking at everything he's just been through and what he just saw happen. And he says to God, no fair. This isn't what I wanted to happen. How come they get something that I don't? Or how come anything good is happening to them at all? Jonah is throwing a temper tantrum to God. It's really interesting. So what's his problem? We're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to talk about Jonah's problem and and Jonah's real problem underneath the problem. But first, let me say what Jonah's problem is not. And I think this is interesting. Jonah's problem is not a biblical problem. He doesn't lack biblical knowledge. In fact, his biblical knowledge is really strong. We've already seen him quote from many different Psalms. In this passage that we just read, he actually quotes from Exodus. About the steadfast love of the Lord. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Jonah has biblical knowledge. He has actually all the right answers. But he's still got a lot of problems. And he's still very wrong about some things. And let me just say from the beginning, if you're someone who grew up in church. And I was someone who grew up in church. I'm someone who grew up in church. And and you feel like you have really good biblical knowledge. You can quote a lot of scripture and your friends are really impressed with your catechism answers. That's good. I want my kids to be that way. I want them to have that sort of biblical knowledge. But knowing the answers doesn't always solve the problem, right? Knowing the biblical answers doesn't always take away the problems. You know this to be true because if knowledge could keep you from certain sin patterns that you struggle with over and over again, then they would go away. You know some of the answers. You know the things to avoid. You know where you're hurting people. You know where you're running the things that aren't good for you. So it's not a knowledge problem. It's got to be something deeper than that. Jonah had answers, but he still got problems. So it has to be something deeper. So if his problem isn't a biblical knowledge problem, what is it? Jonah's problem, like all of ours, is a heart problem. It's not his orthodoxy. That's his beliefs. It's his orthopraxy. That's the practice of his beliefs. That's what's called into question. You see, Jonah believes. He believes that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But he is so frustrated by it. Why? It's because who God has been gracious and merciful to. Namely, those nasty Ninevites, right? Verse 1 says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. What is the it 
It displeased. What it, the it is, is everything that happened in the previous chapter, chapter 3. Which is what we studied last week, if you were with us. It's that Jonah preached a message of judgment to his enemies. A message of warning. And then, of all things, they listened. And they actually responded. And then they repented. And now they're Christians. Or they're at least believing in Jonah's God. And so in chapter 4, since God withheld his anger from Jonah's enemies, Jonah is not withholding his anger against God. No fair. He looks at his enemies and he sees how God is entering into a relationship with them. And he's so mad about it, he wants to die. Did you catch that? He wants to die. He simply does not want to live on earth with a repentant Ninevite. Jonah's problem is that he loves God's grace to him. But he hates God's grace for others. Jonah wanted mercy for Jonah. But Jonah wanted justice for the Ninevites. Or to to quote our old friend Russ Whitfield, who visited with us last semester, he said in a message I listened to, he said, Jonah wanted grace for himself, but he wants karma for everybody else. Right? They have what's coming to them. Is Is that not how we all are to some degree? You want people to give you a break if, say, you forget to pay your part of the rent for a few days? But if someone piles the dishes up, they need to go to jail. Right? Grace for us. Justice for everybody else. Really, it's an issue of mercy and justice. And I want to work through the the definitions of those things for a little bit. At least kind of the, the really loose definition. The shorthand definition for justice is simply this. It's getting what you deserve. Right? That's justice. That's what we want in our justice system. That's what we want. We want justice for innocent people. We want justice for guilty people. We want justice. That's getting what you deserve. So mercy then is not getting what you deserve. It's being spared of what you deserve. So what is grace then? Grace takes it a step further. Grace is actually getting something you don't deserve. Okay, so justice, getting what you deserve. Mercy, not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. To illustrate the difference, let's just say that you get caught cheating on a test. Justice is you get an F. You fail. That's what you deserve. You cheated, you fail. Mercy is maybe getting a chance to retake the test on your own. You're not getting what you deserve, which is an F. You're getting another chance. So what would grace be? Grace would be getting caught, being forgiven, and then giving a, giving a passing grade anyway. Getting something you don't deserve on top. So that's sort of the difference between the, the, those things. And all the rule followers in the room just threw up in their mouth a little bit at that last scenario. <laughs> They're like, no, they don't. You want justice, right? We want justice for others. We want mercy for ourselves. We love grace and mercy for us. It's interesting how Jonah uses the word steadfast love in this complaint. Steadfast love in this statement when he says, Lord, I knew that you were abounding in 
steadfast love. It's interesting because Jonah used this phrase earlier, just two chapters ago. In chapter 2, when Jonah was praying from the belly of the fish, it was God's steadfast love to him that gave him so much comfort for himself. But now it's God's steadfast love that brings Jonah to a point of hatred for his enemies. Isn't that interesting? Mercy for me, justice for you. Jonah is crying out, no fair. Let's talk about his anger for a minute. Anger is not the problem either. It's a symptom. All of our anger is a symptom of a much deeper problem. Anger, like any of our negative emotions, serves as an indicator that something else is going on beneath the surface. Anger works the same way as jealousy or envy or impatience or something like that. It is an indicator that something is wrong underneath the surface. It's like a warning light on the dashboard before you see the smoke coming out of the engine, right? It's like the uh, anger is like a cough that I just heard. Thank you. Good timing. <laughs> the coughing's not the problem. The coughing is a symptom. Nursing majors agree. It's a symptom of something going on in the body. Okay, so let me illustrate it a couple ways. Uh, Trimper um, Longman and Dan Allender wrote a book together. And it's on the back table. We have this book table back here. And there's two copies of it. It's called Cry of the Soul. It's one of the most profound books I've read in the last 10 years. It is so practically helpful. What they're tracing is how the emotions of our lives, their premise is the emotions of our lives are windows through which we see the heart of God. And they specifically use Psalms to point to that. But our emotions are windows through which we see the heart of God. Therefore, our negative emotions, anger, jealousy, envy, I'm working with those tonight. There's plenty of others. Those are windows through which we see we're missing the heart of God. They're warning lights. On the dashboard. Now, let me illustrate it another way. A few years ago, um, our our grass in our home in Huntsville, Alabama, um, was very brown. It was kind of the end of winter, moving into spring, and we noticed all of the other yards around us were starting to turn green again for the spring, but ours remained very brown. Let's call it winter brown, and. We lived in this little starter home community where it was kind of like all the grass was connected to each other, right? It's just like little house, little house, little house. And so it was green, 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 brown, green, green. So it was literally just limited to our yard. So around the same time, um, Kelly started noticing these these caterpillars around our house in our driveway. These little caterpillars. And I thought, you know... It's almost spring, caterpillars, butterflies, that's a thing in the spring, right? And so I didn't really do much about this. But we had two symptoms, caterpillars and brown grass. Then one day, Kelly it pressed it a little bit further because I wasn't doing anything. She was like, I'm seeing like a lot of these caterpillar things. And I was looking in the grass, and there's actually several in the grass. You need to look at this when you get home. And so when I got home that day, I looked, and you could just peel back some of the grass And there were like hundreds of these caterpillars in one area of grass. We had a case of what they call army worms. Y'all ever heard of army worms? Army worms are these half-inch... Jonathan knows about army worms. Me and Jonathan. Army worms are these little quarter-inch slimy pieces of sin that have infested our world. And are wreaking havoc on God's good creation. 
Army worms, what they do is they, they crawl. They're not caterpillars. They look like caterpillars, but they crawl underneath the surface of your grass and they eat at the root system. And so you don't know that you've lost your yard until it's too late. When the grass is brown and it's not coming back, we lost basically our yard, all of our grass because of these army worms. And so we had to pay somebody to come out, come in from the outside in order to kill the worms and to, to get them out. I think army worms serve as a really helpful indicator and illustration. Anger, frustration, impatience, jealousy, envy, bitterness. That's just the grass turning brown. There's something going on underneath the surface that we got to deal with. I had a, uh, I have a friend who's a pastor in Charlotte and um, his, his uh, co-pastors like to call him laser beam because laser beams like main uh, spiritual gift seems to be calling people on their crap in the middle of a conversation. When somebody's like, hey, so I'm really dealing with this thing. He'll say, you know what your real problem is? He's very pastoral in that way. And so laser beam will zero in on your real problem. So what's Jonah's real problem? Look in the text. His real problem isn't his biblical knowledge. It's not even his anger. But if we follow the anger, we'll see that Jonah's real problem is the idol underneath the surface of his hatred of the Ninevites. When he says, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah has an idol. And we've alluded to this before plenty of times, but the camera now zooms in on Jonah's face, twisted with anger because of his hatred toward his enemies. He hated who we may call the other, the people on the other side, the people who were from another place, who looked different than him, who believed differently than him, who lived differently than him. They probably hated him too. They were enemies. But Jonah had elevated his love for his own people to the point that he could not wrap his mind around God's grace for anyone who was not his people. He loved his own people, the people of God, more than he loved the God of his people. Jonah has an idol problem. And we do too, because anytime we love anyone or anything more than we love God and more than we love his work in the world, then we have an inordinate love for those people or those things that keep us from loving God and loving others well. And as we've seen before, we can make an idol of almost anything, right? Grades, reputation, people's approval, comfort, money, fun, relationship status, career, Freedom, family, friends, some good things, some bad things in there that we can make an idol of almost anything. But can you make an idol even out of your own people? Out of your own country? Out of your own nation? I think that's what the text is pointing out here for Jonah. Especially when you see that your love for your own people leads to hate for people who don't fit in with you. 
I want to read this quote. This is a bit of a long quote. It's it's a really challenging one from Tim Keller's book on Jonah. When he says it this way, he said, "When when Christian believers care more for their own interest and security than for the good and salvation of other races and ethnicities, then they are sinning like Jonah. Their identity is more rooted in their race and nationality than in being saved sinners and children of God. He says, Jonah's rightful love for his country and people had become an inordinate and too great love rivaling God. He says, rightful racial pride can quickly become racism. Rightful national pride and patriotism can become imperialism. You hear what he's saying there? Not that love for your people is wrong and not that love for your country is wrong. Of course, it's a good thing. But there's a point where love for your people and love for your country can then come toward racism and prejudices and imperialism and and caring way more about your people. I think this is really challenging. So what's Jonah's real problem? It's the problem with his idolatry. And it begs the question that we should consider for our own lives. What is it that I love more than God himself? Or who is it? Could I be guilty of sinning like Jonah? Let me press this a little more. Jonah didn't want those people to be a part of his people. Could Christians in America struggle with some of these same things? Imagine your church becoming full of people who are different than maybe what is made up of majority wise already. Maybe people from another country start coming in to your church that is largely uh, an American kind of group of people. Or maybe from another ethnic background that isn't currently well represented in your congregation. Or maybe people from another socioeconomic bracket that isn't currently well represented in your congregation. Do you become uncomfortable with that idea? Does it make you think, no fair. Don't they have their places? This one was kind of working for me. Can I press it a little bit further? What about RUF? What about... RUF and, and whatever that is for you. Some of you have been a part of RUF for four years. Some of you are, are brand new and we're excited for both of you. And, and some of you really own RUF is like, this is your thing. And, and we're so happy that you're here. But let me ask you, are there people or entire groups of people, even on this campus, that you think if they start coming, if they start to kind of get in what I've kind of made my thing, It's going to make me uncomfortable. It may even frustrate me. I may even think no fair. Can't they just kind of have their own thing? It's a pressing question and one that I've wrestled with and still do. I'll I'll give you an honest confession of what this has looked like for me, even in RUF. There was a few years ago when I was serving as RUF campus minister at a school in Alabama. We were in this sort of, uh, you know, the years that uh, like football programs are really down. They call them rebuilding years. We're in a rebuilding year, Uh, really a couple of rebuilding years. We had graduated a tremendous group of seniors and we kind of didn't really have many underclassmen at all after they left. And so we kind of restarted. And there was one freshman who got involved that second year that I was there named Sasha. And Sasha was very loud. Um, very kind of like physical, like he would hit you a lot. Um, Sasha also had a um, pretty severe kind of social disorder. 
And he was hard to be around and for a lot of people and for me too. I love Sasha, but sometimes he was very inappropriate. He crossed lines. He's a good guy, but he had a lot to learn. That was Sasha. Next, let me tell you about the Bailey brothers. The Bailey brothers, these are two guys who one was a freshman that year. The other was a sophomore. They're brothers. Um, They were cool guys. I I really like these guys. They were super cool. They were strong Christians coming from a great church background. And and, uh, they were also musicians. And they were kind of like trying to make it as musicians. And I thought, we need musicians. We need to be cool. Maybe the Bailey brothers can help us get there. And so I kind of started spending time with these guys and really enjoyed getting to know them. And, and one day I was going to meet the Bailey brothers at Chick-fil-A and we got a booth and we were sitting there and we were talking about our music. And then we were, we were trading back and forth our favorite Avery brothers songs and stuff like that. Cool guy stuff. And, uh, I was trying way too hard. And, and so there I am with the Bailey brothers and we're in this conversation and, and we're either just about to talk about RUF worship. And I was about to present this idea of them coming alongside us and helping us rebuild and all this stuff. And just then, as we're having this conversation, what do I feel but a slap on the back of the head and Sasha kind of. His very tall self then kind of butting into me, his, his hip into my shoulder, as if to say, I'm a part of this conversation now, move. And he was a part of this conversation. I felt a lot of resentment in my heart uh, towards Sasha in that conversation because I thought, I'm trying to show these guys that RUF can be cool. But here's Sasha. And it was a, it was a really frustrating time for me. Because I wanted to use all three of those guys in the ways that would make me look better. I wanted the Bailey brothers because I think they would help the cool factor of RUF. And Sasha, you know, I wanted to be with him, but, but only in, in kind of my way. Well, he took over the conversation. It became Sasha's conversation at that point, And the Bailey brothers quickly were kind of like, hey, we got we to gotta run. And, and they left. Um, what happened next? Well, one person in that booth continued to be involved in RUF and two others didn't. I'll let you sort out who wasn't around after that. That was a hard thing for me because I didn't want Sasha. I wanted the Bailey brothers. I thought no fair in my heart. I wanted comfort. I wanted cool. I wanted to control the narrative of what RUF looked like. I wanted people to think that I was cool. And in my attempt to think, help people think I was cool, I would isolate people who would get in my way. It was an inordinate love for self that God made me confront in the middle of that conversation and one that I still very much struggle with today. This isn't just a past conversation. This is something I struggle with today. Do you have an inordinate love that God wants you to confront? An over love for someone or something that tops your love for God and an inordinate love for your people that causes you to think less of other people. That may be even your people group on this campus. That may be your particular tribe or whatever that makes you kind of throw stones all the time at these other people across campus. Or not just people who are different than you. Maybe people who are really similar than you, but they're getting a lot that you're not getting. The people who are getting the jobs, the people who are getting the relationships, the people whose life just seems to be going exactly like they wanted it to. And you keep striking out. Is it causing you to cross your arms and look away from God and say, no fair. 
If you're with me so far, we should all be asking this very simple question. What do I do about it? Ironically, Jonah answers that question for us, not here, but back in his prayer in chapter two. Before God's steadfast love drove him to anger, it actually led him to hope. And there's this great verse. We referenced it just a few weeks ago from that prayer where he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Again, those who pay regard to vain idols, that's that's us. Forsake their hope of steadfast love. We all pay regard to vain idols. We have to begin seeing how they get in the way of our hope of receiving God's steadfast love. For remember that you too were once an enemy. You and I were literally the other to Jesus. We were the other that God chose to cross barriers in order to love. Across the barrier from heaven to earth, across racial barriers, social barriers, that Jesus came into the world to save. Paul, Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians when he says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins, living in a kingdom of darkness, enemies of God. But he goes on to say, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead. In our transgressions, he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's a gift of God. It's not by work so that no one can boast. It's amazing when we cross our arms and we look away from God and we scream no fair. God looks directly at us. And he causes us to look directly to the cross. To see what no fair really looks like. For it's on the cross that our sin was paid for. We failed the test. We deserve an F because of our idols. And Jesus is the one who paid the penalty. That's no fair, right? He died for the stuff below the surface of all of our anger and jealousies, envy. Because of Jonah's anger, he prays this thing where he says, Oh, Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. Yet the better Jonah, Jesus himself, prays in the garden out of his love, not out of his anger. He's sweating blood because of his agony and fear of the cross. And he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In other words... Jesus' prayer is, take my life from me. For it is better for me to die that they may live. Justice is getting what you deserve. Jesus did not get what he deserved. He got what we deserved. And that's called mercy. And more than that, we get his righteousness added on top. Seen as sons and daughters of the living God, if you were in Christ. So how do we deal with our idolatry? The stuff that's underneath our hatred and our anger and our bitterness and our jealousy and our envy. We have to first see that we are deeply loved. And that Jesus has paid for all of our idols. So that we can look to his steadfast love in order to begin being set free. Our hearts have to be melted by the message of his love for the other in order for us to begin loving the other in our life, no matter who that might be. 
Sinclair Ferguson said, hatred of others is a crime against both God and man. These kind of prejudices, he says, lie in the heart of every one of us. But our prejudices have to be exposed just as they were in Jonah's life. And once exposed, they must be destroyed by grace. Isn't that a great quote. Our prejudices have to be exposed. And I hope that we're just scratching the surface, digging just a little bit underneath the surface. Our prejudices have to be exposed in order for them to be destroyed by grace. Let me close with this one story of what this has looked like in one particular person's life. It's an amazing story. I recently read about Ken Parker. Ken Parker is a KKK member turned neo-Nazi white supremacist from Florida. And this is the story about how his life began to change because of the kindness of the other that he hated for so long. So Parker did it all. He wore the green robes of the Grand Dragon. He had giant swastika tattoos on his body. He protested and spoke out and posted and commented online. He marched in Charlottesville very proudly. He publicly supported the white supremacist ideology And he held up people like Dylan Roof as examples of doing what is right for the white race when he shot and killed nine African-American Christians who had gathered for a routine prayer meeting. That was the story of Ken Parker. And so he was featured as one of many in this documentary that was made last year talking about his beliefs. And he was very honest about his beliefs. Um, And as this documentary came out on Netflix... He watched it several times, he said. And he said he just kept thinking how stupid he sounded and how stupid he looked. And he watched this documentary and he began really questioning, why is it that I'm doing what I'm doing? And seeing himself on the screen made him do something that he would have never done before this. And that was that he befriended someone. His neighbor, who was a pastor at a local African-American church. And he made a friendship with this neighbor who then invited him to his church. And so he walked into this church one night with his fiance. And he even stood before them. And this was a church very similar to the church in Charleston that Dylan Roof walked into. And he stood before them and he actually gave them his beliefs at the time that he was kind of still working through quietly. But he said, here's the deal. Here are my views. I'm a neo-Nazi and this is what I believe. And he said that they just embraced him. They literally hugged him. And they said, we're sorry that that's your view of us. But we love you and you're welcome here anytime. That was the moment that everything began to change for him because his hatred was beginning to be destroyed by grace. When the people who had hated him so deeply were showing him nothing but kindness and compassion, literally opening their arms, especially when he didn't deserve it. And it wasn't too long after that. It was actually about a year after he marched in Charlottesville that Parker walked to the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, hand in hand with his now black pastor, who baptized him into new life as a Christian. It's an amazing story, right? From death to life, from hatred to love, from envy, bitterness, jealousy, to being embraced and loved by the ones that he hated so much. 
Listen, I don't know what idols God may be bringing to your mind or what bondage you may feel that you are in right now. But the answer for all of our idolatry is they have to be exposed and then destroyed by grace. Deeper grace that goes deep into the soils of our hearts. Our jealousy, our fears, our prejudices. We have to see that one has come from the outside in, just like the exterminator came and removed the army worms from my yard. We have to have salvation from the outside come in. And to begin destroying by his grace the idols of our hearts. To see how we have been embraced as the other to Jesus Christ, who has shown you nothing but compassion and kindness and literally opened his arms when he opened his arms on the cross for you, especially when we didn't deserve it. So being loved as the other is the very thing that will free us to begin loving the other, no matter who they are. And that's an invitation to all of us tonight. Would you pray with me?